On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with marine biologist Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello, everyone. Is that working? Yeah. Well, I think we can start on time. Um, We're going to speak up here for about 45 minutes and... Then we'll open it up for a conversation in the room, and I'll bring it back here at the end because we're recording um, to broadcast later. And the other thing I was supposed to let you know, which you've heard before, is turn off your phones (laughs) because we are uh, recording this for radio. Um, Anything else? All right. So... um, Ayana, we, you and I met on As One Does on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> and it's so lovely to experience you in all this dimensionality and flesh. Yeah, at least three dimensions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So I will um, formally introduce you. Okay. Um, Ayana Elizabeth Johnson is a marine biologist, a policy expert, and writer, and a Brooklyn native. I think that's an important part of your credential. That is an important credential. Yeah. Um, She is co-founder of the Urban Ocean Lab, a think tank for coastal cities. She co-created Spotify, Gimlet's podcast, How to to Save a Planet on Climate Solutions. She co-edited this beautiful climate anthology, which I had not discovered until now, and I so recommend it, All We Can Save. Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. And also your co-founder of the All We Can Save Project, which I recommend that people look up online. Um, I love how you, how you stress um, in, that, in the description of that work that you're nurturing the we in that all we can save. Mm-hmm. Um, people mistitle that book all the time as all you can save. And I'm like, you've already entirely missed the point of the book. <laughs> Okay. Um, And I have also been fortunate to read a bit of a book in Becoming, a manuscript, um, which, uh, and and I feel very fortunate, and I'm not going to quote from it too much here because it it will come out and you can all read it one day, but um, what if we get it right? Mm -hmm. What if we get it right? And... um, so you spoke this morning about the Venn diagram, and I'm, we're, we're going to kind of go in other directions, but when we open this up later, you may have questions from this morning, and all of that is invited. Um, we, we live in a species moment, is how I think of this. Mm. Um, I think it was probably true pre-2020, but it is clear post-2020. Um, and. I believe that um, underlying every grave and wondrous potential that we have as a species and ratcheting up the panic that leads us away from rising to our highest human capacities in every sphere of our life together, each of us knows 
and feels the disarray of the natural world at a cellular level mm -hmm. in our bodies. You know, I've had this accumulative conversation across years with people working in so many spheres of our relationship with the natural world. And, and what, is, what is true is that it's, it's not even, that, that we are not separate from it, right? It's not even so much that we are in it, we are of it. We are one of eight we, million or so species on right. this planet. Yeah, yeah, we are of it. And so, so to me, kind of an, under, an undergirding question for us at this in this generation um, in time is how to carry and reestablish you know, that belonging amidst mm -hmm. the alienation of the way we've been living. Mm -hmm. And nothing less than a transformation, which is what you bring home, of who we've been and how we've been living is needed. But how to begin? Where do we begin? Where to begin? <laughs> and you know, I want to read something. This is from your, from your book. Um, the book that does not exist yet. The book does not exist. The book My in becoming. May or may not be in the room, being like, "Tell me more about this book." <laughs> <laughs> um, you write. My perspective is that of someone brimming with juxtapositions. I am a trained scientist who always intended a career in policy. I am the daughter of a practical school teacher and a wistful artist. I am cold New York winters and Caribbean heat. I am working class and Harvard. I am black and white. I am urban and smitten with wilderness. I am proof of the American dream and proof that it is all too rare. And then you write, these are not dichotomies, but currents. Hmm. So just an observation as we start, I feel like the way you hold all of this, these not dichotomies, but currents in your person and your body kind of is, is part of what helps you be a teacher and, and, a, and a bridge person and an explorer right, in this vast realm of crisis and promise that is existentially before all of us. I'd like to think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think in this species moment, as you call it, it is this incredible time in human history where we all have to figure out how we're going to show up, how we're going to be helpful. Because, you know, the world is rife with any number of dangers and injustices and trends going in horribly wrong directions. Yeah. And one of the major things that I was told over and over again as a child, it was very much like, yeah, you can be whatever you want. Like, absolutely, go be a marine biologist. That sounds reasonable. The only thing I was told not to be was a jazz singer because um, there's not like a good retirement plan that goes with that. <laughs> my family had all of these close friends who were jazz musicians, so my parents thought that was like, that was, they were like, keep that as your hobby. Right. Um, so I think... The, the lesson that I was um, taught was you have to give back. You know, that same motto, to whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah. And even though, you know, I didn't have come from a family with wealth or any extra resources, we had enough and I had an incredible wealth of opportunities mm -hmm. and experiences. And so while my parents made it clear that I was welcome to explore as many doors as I wanted. Um, it was very clear that I needed to figure out like what a life of service meant. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they they helped me explore that for myself. Let's um, let's kind of ground this in the origins of your passion for the ocean. Mm. Um, I mean, how do you not love the ocean? Well, right. Well, I think that's something that so so you so Key West, Florida, summer of nineteen eighty five. It, it was, I was a, five for you people were who five. can't guess my age from my voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a it was a rare vacation that you that all, your whole family was on, mm-hmm. and you see a tropical reef through the floor of a glass bottom boat, and it, it it's really clear that to me that you that memory is in your body and it mm-hmm. propelled you forward. So you know through the rest of your life. But would you yeah. kind of take us there to to yeah. that to that experience? So. Um, my dad was Jamaican. My mom grew up on Long Island. My my parents had this like super strong um, sense that like the job of a parent was to equip your child with the skills that they would need to navigate the world, and one of those was to learn to swim for safety, for adventure, for all the reasons. You know, learn how to drive, learn to swim, learn to sing, learn to dance, all these things. You know, use a power drill and a hammer and a whatever, um, and so. That was the summer that they decided it was time for me to learn how to swim. And we went down to this um, little bed and breakfast in Key West, Florida, with what I remember to be, have been an enormous pool, which is probably like, you know, for scale of like a tiny five-year-old, like a normal-sized pool. Um, And I remember just the colors were so vibrant, leaving Brooklyn um, and going to the Caribbean and seeing like the turquoise of the pool and the magenta of the bougainvillea flowers around us and the palm trees. Like my father was an architect and he used to draw all these pictures with me and he drew palm trees. And I was kind of like, yeah, like Dr. Seuss, cute, you know, but to see all of this in real life was just so magical. And at home, I was just like, you could never get me out of the bathtub. And now there was like an enormous bathtub right outside our like hotel room door. Um, so that was just, I was just, I became a fish, you know, as some kids do. Um, and then there was this moment on a glass bottom boat and to see a coral reef for the first time and to see all of these magnificently colored fish swimming around and to see this literal window into this other world I was just in awe. I thought like, how come no one told me this existed? (laughs) The world has been holding out this like immense secret. You had fish, you had a wall of fish tanks in your apartment in Brooklyn. Yeah, we had, um, yeah, all these fish tanks. My dad sort of like didn't want to totally leave the Caribbean behind, um, but also wasn't like super keen on like, whatever the maintenance is required to eliminate algae. So at some point, my mom was like, okay, that's enough. We're cutting you off with the fish tanks. Um, So I knew that fish existed. My father would go fishing on the end of Long Island um, until there stopped being enough fish to catch to make that pleasant. And he just sort of quit fishing, which was a sad moment for him. Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, I always, fish was a big part of like, you know, our diet um, and... um, my pets, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. they were there at like eye level when I learned to walk all these little guppies and, um, but was the revelation kind of the ocean <laughs> that they were it's in? It's really big yeah. and there's a lot of different kinds of fish and yeah. it's this like whole city that's happening down there, right? Uh-huh. It's not just like 
these little sections where all the fish are the yeah. same. It's like this super vibrant and dynamic, like alternate universe, this ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I just had a lot of, had a, a lot of follow-up questions after that yeah. initial trip. Yeah. And then I'm also curious about um, the origins in you of this question what if we got this right? Mm-hmm. Because obviously there had to be other observations made after that initial falling in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when the thing that you love is threatened, the natural reaction is to try to save it. Um, and I fell in love with Caribbean coral reefs like right as they were starting to crumble. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess you learned that did you learn that right away, or was that a while? No. My parents sheltered me a bit, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think I'm grateful for. Um, but I actually like looked back as I was cleaning out um, a, a cabinet in my mother's house uh, a few years ago, and I found an essay that I wrote when I was like 14, which was like, I am going to help I'm going to do environmental work and I'm going to figure out how to be helpful. And it wasn't specifically about the ocean. I almost went to school for forestry because, I mean, trees are also pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was just that feeling like how can I intervene, right? How can I stop the decline of this magnificent ecosystem? How can I um, rally people around this topic? And the reason I didn't go into forest ecology was because there were a lot of other people sort of chaining themselves to trees and like doing all this work. And I felt like no one at that moment when I was thinking about graduate school, um, there weren't enough people being like, hey, don't forget about the ocean. So I was like, well, I can... I can certainly say that ad nauseum for the next few decades and see if I can help build these bridges um, or strengthen these bridges between science and policy and communication. What came to mind for me um, is the conversation I had with Sylvia Earle, who also has a great lineage at TED. Um, And I was just thinking about you being of a very different generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, for her her to be a woman in the field and for you, right? What um, a pioneer. And and for you also, I mean, she. I'm just. I just just kind of copied out some of the some of what she said to me, and you know, her pointing out. I mean, I feel like when you tell your story of seeing the fish, we do kind of remember that. That I mean, that's a very universal experience. The fascination, <clears throat> the delight of a child. I mean, being a marine biologist is like a really common dream job. Yeah, it's, I'm when just people extremely are extremely <laughs> stubborn. That you grew up and held on to it, and how she talked about, um, you know, we we're so fixated on outer space, mm-hmm. and what she called the ocean is inner space. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that you know, in the last half century in which she built her career, and that you've kind of entered this field, she said it's been a time of revolutionary change in terms of what we know, right? That we didn't know of the great mountain change, the hydrothermal vents, the mm-hmm. existence of life in the deepest sea. Um, it wasn't until 1960 that people descended to the deepest part of the sea and we discovered tectonic plates. But you are coming into the field um, 
with you know, kind of on the heels of that revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with a very different motivation. I mean, I think her generation was, they were explorers. Explorers, yeah. They were pioneers. They were like, right. what is even down there? Right. Right, how do we... Aquanauts. Aquanauts. Yeah. Like, how do we understand yeah. this? And then, oh, shit, this is in trouble. Yeah. And they all became conservationists, yeah. right? right. Um, we saw that same, like professional transformation was Jacques Cousteau. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really grow up looking to their work. I didn't really mm-hmm. watch very much TV. I've, oh, so many people I went to school with who were a bit older than me were inspired by Cousteau. And mm-hmm. I was inspired by um, having this understanding that ocean conservation is a matter of cultural preservation being the daughter of a Jamaican and thinking about people all around the world in coastal communities who depend on the ocean for their food security, for their livelihoods, for their cultures, Mm -hmm. that if we lose the health of ocean ecosystems, we lose something much, much greater than the way it's often framed in conservation as um, an issue of of, of biodiversity more technically. Right. Um, And so... I've always, because that's my motivation, is more like socioeconomic and cultural, um, I've been determined to think about policy as a major part of my work and solutions. Um, And it's really just, for me, it's like as much as I love fish and octopuses and kelp and all these things, like it's really about people, um, why I do this work. Yeah, and that's an interesting point too, isn't it, that we... um you're right. The ocean conservation idea was all about the creatures in the ocean that could be saved. Yeah. I mean, I want to save the creatures. You do. I know, I know, I know. I know. Well, so, so I'd really, let's go there. Let's, um, let's really get into how you investigate this as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, so here are three areas that I learn you work in. And, I, and I, I want you to explain to me what they mean. Marine sure. spatial planning. Ooh, one. that's yeah. a good one. What is that? So um, marine spatial planning, also known as ocean zoning, which is maybe a more obvious definition, it's very similar to the way we do zoning on land, right? Where you'll have industrial, agricultural, residential, um, and park types of areas. Um, and you actually have places where you do things and places where you don't do things. But the ocean has been, you know, for most of human history, very much this open access, shared resource um, that's just been plundered by whoever could get there first with the highest tech equipment, mm-hmm. whatever that meant at the time. Um, and that hasn't gone that well. Yeah. And so this idea that we could make a plan a marine spatial plan, an ocean zoning map for deciding what should happen where and when Mm -hmm. um, and how to reduce the conflicts between different uses, um, where things are, can harmoniously coexist, how to, you know, make sure we're not putting shipping lanes where whales are trying to migrate and we're thinking about where offshore wind energy should be sited and where um, regenerative ocean farming should happen and where fishing should happen, right? All these things need a place and it's much more helpful for um, industry if they have some certainty about the regulatory framework within which they're trying to develop their business plans. It also just feels so elemental. I mean, it's, it feels incredible that this didn't happen until... I know. It still hasn't happened in most places. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Um, policy, placebo effect, and conservation. Ooh, that's a deep cut, Krista. Is that sexy? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as sexy as implementing climate solutions. Um, the policy placebo effect. So this came out of a paper that um, I was sort of a minor co-author on, which was based on this marine spatial planning project yeah. on the island of Montserrat in the Caribbean. Um, and a lot of you know surveys were done to understand people in the community, how are they perceiving different ocean policy options? How are they perceiving the health of their resources? And one of the most interesting results was to learn that people assume that fish populations are healthier, basically like right after you pass a law to protect them, okay. which is just impossible. They like can't make babies that right. fast, right? right. Um, and so there's this placebo effect where people just assume that once you pass the law that everything's going to be okay. And this is actually a huge problem with um, ocean philanthropy too, is that people want to pay... Nonprofit groups to do the work to establish protected areas, but not to maintain them, not to enforce them, not to monitor them. Do you so, think we do that with laws that have to do with human dynamics as well? I mean, I mean, humans are sort of a mess, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, okay, and so then you've you've done a lot of work on collaborative research um, between small island states, and of course, this mm. gets you back to your Jamaican heritage. Um, you spent a decade working with fishing communities in the Caribbean, and I, the, what I'd like to know is, you know, what what they what you learned there oh, from them, what they, how that formed everything you do now. Mm. I think um, I just made it less theoretical, mm -hmm. right? I had been an academic, right? I. Um, I studied environmental science and public policy as right. an undergraduate, and, and I was off doing my PhD in marine biology and just like reading about this stuff. Um, and even though my motivation was one of, um, in some sense, I didn't have the language for it yet, but really a sense of social justice and a sense of um, self-determination for islands that had this these wild histories of colonialism, and we're trying to figure out a way forward um, where they were actually in charge of, of shaping their own futures. Um, and the ocean, of course, was a big part of that, being Caribbean islands. Um, and so I spent a lot of time drinking beer with fishermen. I, for months, was like driving around with a cooler full of beer and sodas and snacks in my trunk and a bunch of folding chairs and I had this survey that was like I don't know, 200 questions long and I would just be like tell me everything mm -hmm. I've got time you know um, and having hundreds of hour two hour conversations with fishermen in Curacao and Bonaire and Barbuda and Montserrat um, I had sort of become like a bit too practical, a bit too like cost-benefit analysis, a bit too um, theoretical about the fact that these are people trying to feed their families. These are people who, um, you know, fishing is not a job, it's a way of life, it's a culture. Um, and I just hadn't been sensitive enough to the realities that um, 
folks were living in these different communities. And so it was really important for me to hear out of the mouth of a fisherman, um, you know, I used used to, um, there's a particular story, there's a a 15-year-old fisherman, he was the youngest one I interviewed, Um, part-time, he wasn't, he was still in school, um, and the way he described the effects of overfishing was, you know, it was very much, um, he grew up in this strong oral tradition and like most fishing communities have a pretty strong oral tradition of like the biggest fish stories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, they used to show the size of the fish they'd caught vertically. And he like put his hand over his head. He's like, and now we show the size of fish we catch horizontally. And he put his hands the width of his shoulders. And that is just a complete transformation in what these ecosystems look like and how how hard it is to make a living. And that is something I will just never forget. You mean forget. the size of the individual fish. Yeah. And that's because the larger fish have been. Are we the ones we who caught them. Caught, we ate right? them. And you pointed at this, you told this interesting thing that, uh, in fact, the larger fish have babies and have stronger babies unlike yeah. the older, long, older larger yeah. fish. Yeah, there's this like human. sort of completely unpolitically correct term called BOF, which stands for big old fat female, which means that the big female fish, the old ones, mm-hmm. make the most babies and the healthiest babies. Mm-hmm. So their eggs have like a higher lipid They, they don't content. have menopause. It's like the opposite of humans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they are so valuable to the future of fish populations. Um, and they're also, you know, we tend to target the largest fish first. So mm-hmm. they're, in many cases, the first to go. And mm-hmm. so we're fishing, there's this term called fishing down the food chain. So we've started with like the tunas and the sharks. and We're kind of like working our way down, mm-hmm. uh, which means we're just like taking out whole levels of, um, of the food pyramid. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the statistic for that is about 90% of the large fish um, are gone since 1950. It's incredible. It's horrifying. Yeah, there's, 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 I think this is an article you wrote in the Sierra Club. Um, it's a contrary to this adage, there are many fish in the sea. There are yeah. in fact not many Not fish that many fish in the, in the sea, sea, relatively sea. speaking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but also... And you've just walked into this, that unsustainable, unregulated fishing is also a human rights disaster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that essay um, uh, was published in Sierra Magazine, but it was an an essay I wrote for an anthology called Black Futures, Mm -hmm. um, edited by Jenna Wortham and Kimberly Drew, where I wrote about this intersection between ocean conservation and social justice, because I feel like we don't talk about that enough. I feel like this conversation is starting, right? And you're a part of it, and other people are part of it. But does it? It does still feel like that to you, like that, like this very underdeveloped. I'm trying to think of a more nuanced way to say yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think. I think in some sense um, we've been doing land conservation in a more nuanced way for a longer time. Mm -hmm. Um, 
if we think, for example, about like the the food, uh, the farm to table movement mm -hmm. in restaurants, for a long time it was like, you know, who raised your cow and where did they live and what did they eat and how many massages a week did they get? And like you could get all this information about mm -hmm. the livestock on farms and the vegetables and the grains and all of it. But when you go to the same restaurant where you're getting all this information about what is farmed on land, you ask about the fish and they have no clue. And it just mm -hmm. seems to me very clear that like people have just a different mindset about um, extracting from the ocean. We forget that these are like wild animals and we don't expect to be able to eat you know, lions on land sustainably as a major source of food, but that's basically what tunas are in the ocean. They're in fact multiple le levels above um, you know, what a lion would be on land in terms of their role in the food chain. Mm -hmm. um, and so there really is, um, I think, just a different mindset when it comes to the ocean, a little bit of out of sight, out of mind, a little bit of just um, less sort of ocean literacy. Mm -hmm. It's not something that we're really taught about in the same way. So, you know, that, um, that's that article, that's your article, um, well, just to come, to come back to this idea of juxtapositions, mm -hmm. um, and I think this is something everybody's feeling at TED this week also, this, like, there is a litany of doom, mm -hmm. which is telling truth, mm -hmm. right? I mean, this was just from that. The oceans have absorbed 90% of the excess heat created by burning fuels, sea levels rising, destroyed coastal ecosystems, entire ocean polluted, the plastic epidemic, and everything you've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. And, but for you, and for you, <clears throat> the work that you're doing and that you're inviting all the rest of us to do is to hold that truth-telling, a seriousness about that, a seeing, mm -hmm. together with wonder and joy and those things going hand-in-hand hand with justice mm -hmm. and regeneration. Um, is that... Is, has yeah, just talk some about that and how that clarity um, and that energy, because it really is an energy, mm. you know, has evolved. Um, my PhD advisor, Dr. Jeremy Jackson, um, you know, studied Jamaican coral reefs as they were in their decline, and what he said was he doesn't. Um, want to write an ever more refined obituary for the ocean. Um, and his wife, Dr. Nancy Knowlton, then started this ocean optimism pro project where the whole thing was about, um, you know, what, what are we going to do? Like, where are things working? What lessons are we learning? What are the initiatives that we should be, like, replicating around the world? Um, and that was certainly a major influence on me. I've always been focused on solutions. I have this, like extremely practical approach to most things. I'm like, okay, who's doing what? What's the plan, right? right. And it's sort of my, my weird resistance to hope as a framework for what people need. I'm like, sort of, fuck hope, where's the plan? Like, what's the strategy? <laughs> <Okay. Like, laughs> right. How are we all chipping in and like getting yeah. this together? Um, like, let's not talk about feelings so much. Let's, mm -hmm. let's figure out what's next. And so that... Um, is the, the vibe that I've tried to take into my work as it's broadened from oceans to climate more generally is mm -hmm. um, 
We have most of the solutions we need at our fingertips for all of these climate challenges, right? Whether it's agriculture or green building retrofits or bike lanes or composting or wind energy in the ocean or farming seaweed or whatever. Like we know how to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. We just have to do it. And so figuring out how we can welcome more people into this work, get people excited, help them find where they fit is really where um, where I've been focusing my my yammering energies these days. <laughs> you also use the word love a lot. Mm. And just as every... I mean, recently I interviewed Colette Pichon Battle, and I know oh, you heard that because I saw you gem. on Twitter. Um, but, but I... Th- and, and I well, I don't... I think you're roughly same generation. Um, mm-hmm. And... I think Although she's so wise, she's she's incredible. That Gulf I Coast can't of Louisiana, you're age. wise, you're wise too. <laughs> but no, but I think that I hear you speaking the same language, and mm-hmm. other people who I feel are actually pushing this forward, and who actually know exactly how bad it is. And it's this insistence on loving mm-hmm. uh, what it is we have to save. Yeah, that allows loving the future. Loving the future. Yeah, I mean. The most depressing thing I can think of is to just watch the world burn and crumble before my eyes while I just wallow in self-pity on the couch, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't have any delusions that I can save the planet, mm-hmm. but you got to try, right, yes. to do your part. Yeah. Um, and that's how I think about all of this. Like, we know what we're supposed to do. In that same way that you were describing, we know that it's wrong right now. We know that things are out of balance on a cellular level. We can feel that sort of friction with the way that we move through the world. Um, I mean, I dare you to stand in a redwood grove and not be humbled, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Or to dive on a coral reef and see even just the glimmer of its former magnificence and have some respect for these ecosystems and the fact that we are sharing this planet. And so I think, I think that climate communication has focused too much on the problem. I will admit I don't read the details of every UN climate report okay. because I know the summary is it is worse than you thought. It is happening faster than you thought. Um, and we really need to get our act together. Mm-hmm. And I focus on the getting our act together part um, because I think, you know, that's that's the pivot that we need right now. We have more than enough information. Um, I'm grateful for the science um, and it's helping us make more nuanced and clear decisions. Um, but the broad strokes that everyone needs to pitch in or have been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would like to offer, so I invoked Sylvia Earle and the other, the other two people that came to mind as I was getting ready to interview you were Albert Einstein and John Lewis. What? <laughs> in this did way. Not, did not see this coming <laughs> at all. That's it, like to keep you, in this way. Very curious how these okay, thoughts are connected. I think that this question, this question that you're asking, this, this what if question, mm. what if we get this right? Yeah. I think that is more of a contribution like than I'm sure you even realize that formulation, mm. right? You know, Einstein asked this what if question about 
pursuing a beam of light at the speed of light, what would happen? Right? That was the beginning of him walking into his discoveries. And John Lewis, um, when I sat with him in Montgomery, you know, he, like he really he he lived as if. He said, What mm-hmm. if the beloved community is already real and we have to live as if? And it, and so and I so I think that uh, that this kind of what if question that you're asking mm-hmm. is is a tool for social transformation. Well, that would be amazing if it were true. Um, we'll see. I mean, yes, this is the working title of the book that I'm I'm writing. What if we get it right? Because I feel like so often, um, yeah. I mean, the climate news is dire and depressing. And the amount of work that needs to happen, the transformation that Mm -hmm. needs to happen in terms of everything, right? Um, Agriculture and buildings and industry and electricity and transportation and all of it, um, that's a lot of change. And humans are not always like super stoked on change when we don't know what the outcome is going to be for us, for our communities, for our livelihoods. And so... That, and it's hard. It's a hard. It's a hard time in many ways. It's a hard time in so many ways. Yeah. And so to think about trying to offer that question: What if we get it right? What if we charge ahead with all the climate solutions we already have? What kind of future do we get? Yeah. Like, show me that it's worth it. Right? Show me this is worth the effort. Show me examples of where this is already happening. Show me that there's a place for me in the future. Mm-hmm after all this change. I thought it was interesting that you said on the spot, the podcast you did with Alex Bloomberg um, for Gimlet, that you like to ask guests to describe <laughs> what the future would look like yeah. if we get things right on climate. And you said that very few responses made the cut. Yeah. We don't, because we don't talk about it enough, yeah. right? So people somehow are not prepared for that question with a level of detail that makes it interesting to talk about on a podcast. I know, but what that also means that we're not even putting our imagination towards it. Yeah, right? it needs this needs creativity too. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that Naomi Klein talks about a lot: is how we mm-hmm. are sort of in this moment uh, where imagination is one of the most valuable things we can bring to the table, mm. um, and a failure of imagination means a failure of the spectrum of futures that are available to us. Um, And I just, I like to think of, so I I remind myself um, and others that there is still such a wide spectrum of possible futures. Mm -hmm. And we do get some choice in which ones we have, right? Mm -hmm. We're not going to be able to take some sort of time machine backwards to a perfectly pristine planet when there's, you know, eight billion or something people on the planet, Mm -hmm. but we can have any number of possible options. Um, And so while I'm not a fan of hope as a guiding principle, because it by definition assumes that the outcome will be good, which I know is not a given, I'm completely enamored with the amount of possibility that's available to us. So that's the word that I try to embrace when I think about what if we get it right is like how much possibility remains. Mm-hmm. Um, something that, that I think about a lot is... I guess I have to finish writing this book now. <laughs> you really, yeah, you're absolutely... You're, you're, you have to be committed to I it. We're all waiting. I think the, the thing that I'm excited about 
about this book is that it will include interviews with people who have a strong vision yeah. for the future. Yeah. And it involves a lot of, um, it involves exciting and deep collaborations with a bunch of artists who are helping me yes. and hopefully others to see that. Because I feel like, you know, as much as we talk about like, arts and sciences and everybody collaborating. It doesn't really happen as much as we want it to. And a lot of the art around environmentalism has been, especially in the ocean space, just like sculptures of dolphins made out of beach plastic trash, you know? Right. And like, that's not like motivating. Mm -hmm. It's concerning. It's like clear. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of different art we could be making to help people see their way into the future. Yeah, there's a lot of poetry in the book, which Ooh, I said to you. Yes. I've been one thing I've been craving these last days is just a little bit of poetry here. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to get into that, and then we're going to open up for questions in about five minutes. Um, uh, I think a lot about what I call the generative narrative, the generative landscape of our time, which, um, which I know as a person in media is just not covered as well, mm -hmm. is not investigated. With, with as much sophistication as we have to investigate everything that's failing and catastrophic. Um, and I wonder if, you know, I feel like in your work, um, like in this book, you introduce us to Eunice Newton Foote, mm -hmm. right? There's a whole lineage that you are in, names we don't remember, yeah. people who've contributed. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder also just... Uh, what, was, what else? Um, yeah. Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, co-editor uh -huh. of All We Can Save, who introduced me to Eunice. I feel like I'm on a first-name basis with her, even though she uh, was doing her research in 1856 uh -huh. when she discovered that carbon dioxide was a greenhouse gas and would warm the planet. A woman discovered this through experimentation in her backyard and was essentially erased from history. Um, and an Irish physicist, a few years later, came to a very similar discovery and was credited as the father of climate Someone science. Someone with a Y chromosome. Yeah. And Eunice also um, signed the Seneca Falls Convention. Oh, really? Um, so she was, um, as Catherine and I like to say, the first uh -huh. climate feminist. Yeah. Although she didn't really see this whole like apocalypse coming per se. <laughs> she was just like, this turns out it will warm the atmosphere if we emit all of this carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Who else comes to mind for you? What else comes to mind in the generative landscape in this sphere that doesn't um, just do away with what's wrong, but fills mm -hmm. out the whole story of us right now? Will you pass me this book yes, for a second? <laughs> so, um, but the short answer is, um, Catherine and I were motivated to create this book because of how many incredible women were doing critical work that was unrecognized in this moment um, and who had important lessons that everyone needed to share. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, because sexism is rampant, we didn't put 40 essays by brilliant climate women on the cover. We just sort of buried the lead on that. Um, but the back lists all these incredible um, researchers and activists and journalists and um, yeah. it's sort of, the list is long. Um, but I, I'll say, um, because a lot of your listeners have gotten the chance to get to know Colette Pichon Battle a bit, mm -hmm. that in the past few months, I've been working closely with her on a new initiative that we co-founded, which is called the Ocean Justice Forum. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it's this idea that as we develop um, new policies for ocean management and conservation, as we deal with all the ways in which the climate crisis is impacting the ocean um, and the people who live along the coast, whether that's hurricanes or sea level rise or sunny day flooding or overfishing or pollution, dead zones in the Gulf, all of it, um, that we need to be thinking about solutions with a very strong justice lens um, and seeing the way that she builds consensus and seeing the ways in which she... um, never loses sight of the mission mm-hmm. and seeing the ways in which she is able to remind people that we're all in it together mm-hmm. when you want to start sort of parsing the details and opposing each other. Mm-hmm. Um, the way in which she leads, the way in which she, um, you know, she was new to the ocean piece of this, and she was like, all right, like, I've been waiting, let's go. <laughs> right, yes. um, has been just so inspirational. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have a colleague um, whose leadership you get to see at such a close distance mm-hmm. um, to learn from and appreciate has really been such a joy. Mm, I love that. I had also never heard of her until yeah. she was presented as somebody to interview. Um, so I did, I, to, I, I told you about this before we started speaking. I found this, um, where is this poem? This one. Oh, you have it. I have it. Okay. So, so there's also somebody you mentioned, um, who, who I learned about through you, Aisha Siddiqui. Mm-hmm. Um, and, there, and this incredible poem which I'm, I, just, I told you I'd like for you to read to us, and then we'll open it up sure. for questions. Um, but just say, to me, so to me also, again, just the story of who this person is fills out this story that we don't know. Mm-hmm. So um, this young woman, Aisha, um, I met at um, the big youth climate march in New York City, I guess it must have been September 2019, perhaps. Um, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of New York, millions of people around the world, this youth-organized day of climate action. And she was one of a dozen or so young people who was leading that particular um, march. And I was just absolutely in awe of them. Um, And so I came across this poem that she posted on Instagram and just... It knocked my socks yeah, off. That so she wrote. Even just the title, which is On Another Panel About Climate, They Ask Me to Sell the Future, and All I've Got is a Love Poem. What if the future is soft and revolution is so kind that there is no end to us in sight? Whole cities breathe and bad luck is bested by a promise to the leaves. To withstand your own end is difficult. The future frolics about, promise to no one, as is her right. Rage against injustice makes the voice grow harsher yet. If the future leaves without us, the silence that will follow will be an unspeakable nothing. What if we convince her to stay? How rare and beautiful it is that we exist. What if we stun existence one more time? When I wake up, get out of bed, 
My seven-year-old cousin with her ruptured belly tags along. Then follows my grandmother, aunts, my other cousins, and the violent shape of their drinking water. The earth remembers everything. Our bodies are the color of the earth, and we are nobodies. Been born from so many apocalypses. What's one more? Love is still the only revenge. It grows each time the earth is set on fire. But for what it's worth, I'd do this again. Gamble on humanity 100 times over. Commit to life unto life as the trees fall and take us with them. I'd follow love into extinction. I mean, kids these days. (laughs) It's true. true. (laughs) Gets me every time. Yeah. So let's open it up. Um, I think there will be mics roving around. Thank you. Um, So when we were most shut down, shut in during the pandemic, it seems like nature showed up. And I know it's anecdotal, like deer in the backyard, skies clearing over LA. I'm curious what the actual evidence or data was Mm -hmm. and what that might say about what's possible. Um, I'm looking because this is mentioned in one of the essays and all we can save as like the last edit we made because this book was something that Catherine and I um, were co-creating during the pandemic. We started um, in January 2020 and it was published in September. So it was like a nine month wild birthing process. Um, So if you give me just one more second, I will find the actual... Where is Dr. Leah Stokes' essay? Clearly it's been too long since I perused this um, table of contents. I used to like have all the page numbers basically memorized. Um, so the, the long and the, sh- the sort of the short of it is some of these changes were real many of them, right? Like the skies clearing is a real thing. Um, There was less air travel. There were um, greenhouse gas emissions did decline um, several percent over the first few months of the pandemic, um, something like five to eight percent. But we've more than bounced back from that now, right? That was temporary. And we can't all just stop and stay still that's not going to be the solution. And so it was sort of, um, for me, very jarring to think that like in that most extreme scenario, when basically people have stopped traveling, we're not consuming in the same way, um, that we only had a single digit percentage decrease in greenhouse gas emissions, was proof that we need to transform the systems underlying this, right? Because if you're staying at home, 
and you don't get to determine where the electricity comes from when you turn on your lights, right? If you live in an apartment building in New York City, like I do, um, there are some things that are out of your control as an individual that you need, you know, corporations and governments and communities to get together and change the options, right? We need different options for transportation and electricity sources and food sources and building materials and all of this. So for me, it just... Um, that, that glimmer of nature's resilience in terms of like animals sort of emerging mm -hmm. um, was very exciting. That, that glimmer of skies clearing and waters clearing um, as the turbulence subsided in the canals of Venice, for example, was an important reminder that nature like really wants to keep going. Like we need to back off and it can recover. Many things can regrow and replenish. So that is sort of this dual lesson, both that the transformation that we need is much, much deeper than I think many of us had appreciated and also that that nature is there and wants yeah. wants just a bit more room and, and then can can make some comebacks. Mm. It's lovely to think about it that way. Thank you for your talk earlier. Um, what is stuck with me, and it's still there, is this piece about um, the human capital that we need to do this work together, mm -hmm. and how racism is keeping some of that human capital from being engaged. Yep. If we get this right, how does that start to resolve itself? Are you asking me how to fix racism? No. <laughs> I, 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 no, I gave up on asking people that question um, a long time no, ago. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I think um, the way that I would um, sort of expand on that, uh, the point I was trying to make in my talk was that um, after George Floyd was murdered, I couldn't do my work, right? I was completely consumed with grief, um, thinking about not just the loss of his life, but you know how many lives just that summer, um, and you know, and for how many years for the entire history of the United States, yeah. right? Um, and that was just a punctuation mark where people were paying attention. But you can't do your work if you're worried about the ability of your loved ones to live and breathe, right? It's an enormous distraction. Um, and I think I think we have this false um, understanding that white people care more about the environment, in part because people of color have a whole lot of other stuff they have to deal with at the same time as as they care about the planet. And so it's it's not that people of color care less. In fact, we know quantitatively, um, based on polling from Yale and George Mason universities, that um, people of color care significantly more about climate and want to be a part of the solutions at a much higher rate. So um, it's 49% of white Americans who are concerned about climate compared to 57% of black Americans and 69% of Latinx Americans. Mm. And the assumption is that that additional caring 
exhibited quantitatively by people of color is because we are more heavily impacted by the effects of climate change, right? Air pollution and hurricanes and droughts Mm. and floods, and that's true. But the interesting part of that study is that the reason that people of color are more concerned and more engaged, more, more likely to be engaged in the solutions is having a more egalitarian worldview as opposed to an individualistic mm. worldview. Having this more innate understanding that we're all in this together. This is a community thing. This is not an individualistic thing. This is not about everyone obsessing over their own carbon footprints. This is about like systems level change. And in the same way that addressing racism requires systemic changes, so does addressing the climate crisis. And to unleash the potential of all of humanity to solve these incredibly gnarly climate challenges, we're going to need everybody. Mm-hmm. So if, if whatever we can do to take away these other societal barriers that are distractions, the caring is there, the knowledge is there, the investment is there in communities across all races. Um, and so that is, um, for me, such an important lesson right? Mm -hmm. To see those numbers when I was brought up thinking that like, oh, it's like, you know, white people who wear fleece jackets and drive Priuses who are like the ones that care and the ones who are going to save us. When we know that there have been leaders, especially women of color all over the world and the United States who have been fixing this stuff in their communities since air pollution and water pollution um, and soil pollution ever started to exist. So I think there's this opportunity to uplift existing leadership, to fund existing leaders and organizations um, that focus on environmental justice because we can't really do one without the other because we need to unlock all of this potential for for problem solving, all of this um, ingenuity that doesn't have the chance to flourish. Can you say somewhere climate crisis is actually a leadership crisis? Yeah, that is, um, that's Catherine Wilkinson's mm-hmm. turn of phrase. And I think, um, and it that's the motivation for the All We Can Save project, mm-hmm. which is this um, nonprofit that we co-founded to, um, to help to nurture that leadership to help people um, find their place in this work. Um, And she, as executive director, has created this um, incredible set of resources and this wayfinding course and these um, reading circles, materials that's like an extended remix book club for, to help people digest this, right? Because so often we're expected to digest these incredibly, like, fundamental um, ideas and challenges alone. Like the idea that you could just like hand someone a book and that would be the answer mm-hmm. is is not it, right? Because mm-hmm. this is a collective challenge. This is um, this is like this is existential. Yeah. And it needs mulling and dwelling as much as yeah. it needs Taking in. And as much as, you know, there's this cute mission to Mars thing going on, like <laughs> we are stuck here on this planet and we have no. to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see. Yeah. Hi. Um, 
I wanted to go back briefly to that idea of love um, and kind of reciprocity toward the planet and this kind of sense of respect toward mm-hmm. nature. It's kind of a theme that I've been sensing throughout a lot of these kind of climate talks. Um, and I'm curious if you have thoughts on how people can kind of foster this more kind of interdependent or mm-hmm. more aware relationship with nature that is based on love or based on, on respect. Um, the great entomologist E.O. Wilson coined this term biophilia, this love of nature that we are all born with. Um, I mean, show me a child that's not like obsessed with bugs, right? And like autumn leaves and coral reefs. Um, And I think that's something that, you know, we sort of get too practical as we age. Um, Not not everybody um, finds a way to keep that at the center of their lives. And so this is going to sound perhaps really trite, but we need to put down our phones and go outside, and remind ourselves why we do this work. I mean, I was literally hugging redwoods last week in California <laughs> because I'm a tree hugger. Um, and it feels so good to be with parts of nature that have been around for centuries and have seen things and have been part of all of these cycles and to know that you are part of that, right? I think this... The best way I can like describe it is it feels like we're living on top of nature mm-hmm. instead of like mm-hmm. as a part of nature, mm-hmm. especially as someone who grew up in a city. Um, that's how I always felt. I mean, you see when they dig up the concrete um, in New York City to do some repaving that there's actually like rich red soil under there. And the first time I saw that, like as a teenager, I was like, oh, it's not just cement and asphalt all the way down. Because you, I mean, it's, it is easy to forget, right? And so I think um, one of the things that made a big difference for me was in high school, the Student Conservation Association um, is this incredible organization that sends teenagers out into the wilderness to do trail work for the Park Service. And so I spent an entire summer in the San Juan Mountains in Colorado, helping to repair the Continental Divide Trail. And it absolutely changed my life. And I wish that more people had that opportunity. Um, And that particular program is great because you just need your own sleeping bag and hiking boots and they provide the rest. So it is accessible in a way that a lot of these sort of outdoor programs Mm -hmm. are not. Um, But yeah, I mean, in the same way that we have like phys ed requirements, we should have like nature requirements. And I think having a more expansive definition of what that means, because there is nature in cities, right? Um, It's everywhere. Um, But this idea that we can be motivated by love, I think it's just, um, I mean, it's just the more delightful way to approach something that is the work of our lifetimes. Mm. To do it thinking about like not just the love of other species, but the love of other humans, the love of ecosystems, the love of places. I mean, we all have places that we're deeply attached to, and many of them are changing for the worse. Um, and so this potential to 
have that be our driving force um, is to me why I focus on solutions instead of like raging against the machine. I mean, believe me, I, we need to stop with the oil and gas pipelines. <laughs> and I fully support people who are um, protesting those construction projects and taking us decades in the wrong direction. Um, but for me, it's all about like, how do we build the future that we want to live in? where there's a place for us and the people and the things that we love. There's some place you said, um, we, we saunter, we lollygag, we mosey away from the brink instead of running full tilt toward a livable climate future. And I think the context of that remark was mm. to run full tilt. We run full tilt towards, towards what we love and what yeah. delights us. And towards what we can see. Right? Which when we don't spend enough time talking about the future we could have and, and engaging our imaginations and envisioning a world where we actually implement all these climate solutions we already have, then why would you run towards an abyss? If all it looks to you is just a blank canvas, then it's sort of insane to run full tilt toward right. that. Right. And so I think as a society, we just have a lot of work in filling in those details for each other so it feels less scary to run towards this future. Mm -hmm. Other questions or reflections? I grew up in the Midwest, probably 800 miles from the nearest ocean. I don't know that I saw the ocean until I was a teenager. But I grew up loving the ocean and the creatures in it mm -hmm. because of a wonderful, charismatic cultural hero by the name of Jacques Cousteau. Maybe what this moment needs is another charismatic cultural hero. Maybe it could be you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that is very sweet of you to say. Um, I think the thing um, that Jacques Cousteau's own grandson, Philippe, told me was that there cannot be another Jacques Cousteau because our media landscape has changed so much, right? Everyone used to gather around the television yeah. and watch his shows together because there were only like five channels. Mm -hmm. And it was the only ocean adventure show available. And it was the first, and it was so exciting. And now we have this proliferation of, I mean, I don't have cable TV at home, but every time I go to a hotel, I'm like, how do you even choose? And I spend a half an hour scrolling and I give up, right? And it's the same with social media and blogs and all of the new sources of information that having one leader... Um, one charismatic person, I think, is not really possible in the same way as it was before, but I think it's also deeply unwise to have so much dependence on one person who, you know, who could be assassinated, as we've seen in civil rights movements, who could burn out, as we've seen um, in environmental movements, who... Um, might just want to take a break and have a family, right? So I think this is a moment that calls for many leaders because what we need is transformation in every community, in every mm -hmm. sector of the economy, um, in, in every ecosystem, um, with the hundreds of climate solutions we have. So, um, yeah, I, I was remarking um, in my talk earlier that I'm enamored with this term leaderful right now. Um, 
a word that I learned from Black Lives Matter activists who use this as an organizing principle because that is the way that you prevent social movements from being fragile. So I'm deeply flattered by your question and comment, um, but I am so glad that there are more and more people who are doing what I'm doing and saying these similar things. Mm-hmm. Maybe one more. I don't know, but I haven't been paying attention to who was who had their hand up first. I don't think I was first. But I'm curious what you thought. Um, it seems to me that a lot of the focus on environmental pieces have been the un, the cost that we've thrown into society. So we do we do something and. And the speaker earlier today talked about valuing the regenerative part and, and shifting some of the resources mm-hmm. to, you know, how do you value an elephant? And, and there, there was at least a plausible way. I was wondering what you thought about that. I think it's so funny that people say it's too expensive to solve climate change. Because it's just like, what's your alternative? Yeah. Like, if your alternative is, like, understanding the climate projections from the world's top scientists as basically driving humanity off a cliff, then nothing is too expensive. But on a more um, specific level, when we do a cost-benefit analysis, we have to talk about the benefits. And all of these conversations about the cost of transitioning away from fossil fuels or the cost of conserving ecosystems or the cost of building things in different ways or the costs of research and development to have um, ever more sophisticated tools that we need, we have to talk about the immense value, much of which can be quantified and much of which is sort of intrinsic and an existence value, to use the language of environmental economics, um, and I just find that so sort of absurd that we don't do both sides of the equation. We're like, mm-hmm. it's expensive, and it's like, compared to what? Um, and I think there's a great jazz song called Compared to What that always comes into my head when I, when I hear people say, do you like to sing it for us? It is. <laughs> uh, there's no words. Um, which is sort of... Well, also the apt. cost of failing, right? Right, yeah. What, the, what is the, the, the apocalyptic cost of it, of it doing nothing? It is infinite. Yeah. Um, so I think there are more and less efficient ways to do things. There are better and worse options, right? Um, there are some groups or individuals or places um, more suited to some climate solutions than others. It's not to say don't be strategic and analytical about how we deploy our resources, but to be stingy in the face of the climate crisis just means you like really do not have your values in order as far as I'm concerned, or that you just don't really care about other people or other species, in which case that's a really hard conversation to have, right? Because that comes back to this issue of love and what motivates you. And if you're motivated purely by counting pennies and not by saving life on earth, then we're just not speaking the same language. Um, you, you do work a lot with what are new words we need, what are new images. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I kind of, um, and I talked to Colette Pichon Battle about this too. I, I, I feel like the word climate, which we use as a shorthand, Mm -hmm. it doesn't quite, you know, because we don't, you don't love the climate, right? You love, you love the world. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you love the creatures, right? You love life. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I just wonder if you've thought about that. And, you know, and I do think it's important because we know that also there's so much fear going around and there's so much fear that is reasonable and it mm-hmm. gets people living fearfully, living out of the fear place in their bodies. Um, it's a lot to ask of them to take in a kind of rational analysis of a threat mm-hmm. or just to take in the information. But do you think about how language might kind of soften and mm-hmm. open some of those, uh, what, what feel like chasms now? You know what's funny about the word climate is that I spell it wrong almost every single time I type it. It's like that one, everyone has that word that's yeah. like, you use it so but that's, often. It's pretty that interesting it's like, that you misspell climate. Cleomot is how it always comes out when I type it. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm, I'm clearly not super fond of that word um, if I can't spell it correctly. But I think the, um, the word that I've started using more and more is transformation. Because we've talked about a transition away from fossil fuels. We've talked about um, sort of like what we're going to stop doing. We've talked about how we need to do other stuff. But I think... Um, the word transformation has sort of embedded within it the sense of possibility. Like, what are we going to become? Mm-hmm. Um, that was actually the, the, the title under which um, I pitched my, my book project to my editor, was What Will We Become? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really exciting question, And so words that embrace possibility, words that um, are not big and fancy but are clear, Mm -hmm. like sustainability is basically meaningless now that every sort of like corporation has some sort of like sustainability marketing plan and their sustainability officer is in the marketing branch of a lot of corporations, so it clearly is a public-facing thing and not something with a major budget that, you know, reports directly to the CEO. So you can Mm -hmm. show me your org chart and your budget and I'll show you your priorities, right? Right. Um, And someone once said to me that the term sustainability is just too low a bar. Yeah. Because we don't actually want to sustain what we have right now. And imagine if someone, you ask someone if their marriage was how their marriage was doing and they said it's sustainable you'd be like are you sure you want to stay married right right yeah yeah well also that word kind of presupposes that we will get to some place that will be sustainable but transformation it's not dynamic and and actually i mean and you're talking you're talking about transformation of us right and Mm -hmm. of our Entire understanding of our of, of the natural world of society and you know, policy society and, and all those inter and all that interrelationship. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're talking about wholeness, really. Yeah, I think a lot of um, it's a sort of it's a very Western white academic approach to break things down into the smallest possible units and then try to put it all back together with algorithms and um, it doesn't, that's not how nature works. Mm -hmm. That's not how humans work. That's not how societies work. There are all these incredible emergent properties to how we live together, to how ecosystems flourish. Um, And so thank you for that because I think approaching these challenges 
with a sense of wanting to preserve wholeness um, and keep things intact and together. And I have this feeling that I just want to like wrap my arms around as much of the world that I can, not mm -hmm. just hugging redwood trees, but, you know, daisies and slugs and parrotfish and octopuses and <laughs> all of it. I'm really... And occasionally other people. Okay. <laughs> Humans are often disappointing, <laughs> but you. some of them are really good. <laughs> well, I think I speak for all of us in saying that I'm really grateful now to have this experience of you. And so when I think about this, what we are up against, about this us, that you're in it, and your mm. energy, and your perspective, and your words, um, and your science. Um, and what if... And what if, what if we get it right? Do you want to read that Ada Limon poem? I would love to. We thought we to. would also end with a poem, which is in the book to be. And in this, this is in book. the book, yeah, yes. In, yes. in All We Can Save. And I had just marked out that section of the poem that, you, that was in the book. Mm. You can read all of it if, if you want. Um, so Catherine and I, when we were editing this, there was a moment when we decided to include poetry amidst all of these essays and art. And now, of course, I can't imagine the book without this, because as you so deeply appreciate, poetry can help us just find our bearings um, and connect um, in such a visceral way with these things that seem so big and to know that someone else has grappled with them and put them into words can be so mm. reassuring. And so I have a renewed appreciation for poetry in the last few years, the deeper I get into thinking about climate. This poem um, by Ada Limon is called Dead Stars. Out here, there's a bowing even the trees are doing. Winter's icy hand at the back of all of us. Black bark, slick yellow leaves, a kind of stillness that feels so mute it's almost in another year. I am a hearth of spiders these days, a nest of trying. We point out the stars that make Orion as we take out the trash, rolling containers, uh, the rolling containers, a song of suburban thunder. It's almost romantic as we adjust the waxy blue recycling bin until you say, man, we really should learn some new constellations. And it's true. We keep forgetting about Antlia, Centaurus, Draco, Lycerda, Hydra, Lyra, Lynx, but mostly we're forgetting we're dead stars too. My mouth is full of dust and I wish to reclaim the rising, to lean in the spotlight of streetlight with you toward what's larger within us, toward how we were born. Look, we are not unspectacular things. We've come this far, survived this much. What would happen if we decided to survive more, to love harder? What if we stood up with our synapses and flesh and said no? No to the rising tides, stood for the many mute mouths of the sea, of the land. What would happen if we used our bodies to bargain for the safety of others, for Earth, if we declared a clean night, if we stopped being terrified, if we launched our demands into the sky, made ourselves so big people could point to us with the arrows they make in their minds, rolling their trash bins out after all of this is over? Mm.
Thank you, Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, and thank you for all being here. And thanks to Ted. Thank you, Krista. <laughs>